0: Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. With me on the show today is Gregory Milano. He is the CEO of Fortuna Advisors and the author of Curing Corporate Short-Termism, Future Growth Versus Current Earnings. Greg, let's jump in. What is corporate short-termism? I assume most of us have an idea, (laughs) but we may not all have the same idea.
1: Yeah, that's fair, and and thank you, Maureen, for having me on. So corporate short-termism is, as you probably suspect, is when people take actions motivated by their desire to produce results right now, and especially when those actions hurt the long-term of the business. I'll just give you an example. Very often at the end of the year, when someone's falling short of their numbers, either the numbers internally to hit like an incentive performance target or externally to be able to communicate a certain level of revenue or earnings to investors, they'll do things at the end of the year that you would never do if you own the company. For example, they would offer a discount in December in order to motivate sales beyond normal. They're basically pulling January sales into December. They're giving money away because if they just waited till January, they could get full price, but they're trying to boost the current earnings. And of course, that then hurts next year's earnings. And so you wind up having to do the same thing again at the end of next year. And it creates this cycle where you're taking all these bad actions for the long term toward the end of a year you know, that are really not good for the long term health of the business.
0: I worked in corporate finance early in my career, and I remember having this conversation about selling our buildings and leasing them back so we could make our annual numbers. That's a one-time opportunity.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it gets worse also. I mean, you know, this is an innovation-centered discussion, and one of the other things people do at the end of the year is they'll cut R&D in order to meet their earnings numbers. What does that cost you for the long term? Cutting advertising, you know, all sorts of things that don't hurt now but hurt in the long term help you to meet the short-term numbers, and it's really one of the reasons why uh, many companies are not nearly as successful as they could be because of those short-term actions.
0: These companies, though, are doing them because of the broader market and the pressures they're feeling. I assume they're reasonably well-run to exceptionally well-run. So they're not doing them because they're willy-nilly, randomly trying to do stuff. What's the antidote to help well-run companies and leaders of finance or CEOs think through how to manage their earnings so that they don't need to do this?
1: Before I answer that, let me just say that I believe the biggest causes of this are not external. They're not the investors' pressure and journalist pressure. It's It's more internal. It's about having to to hit your budget and, and that sort of thing, profit. But in order to get people to change, we need them to think and act more like long-term committed owners. It's very hard to do, but it's easy to describe. <laughs> you know, I, I often, when I first meet a company, uh, if I'm talking to a, a CEO and six or eight direct reports, I'll say, you know, let's forget about the investors, forget about the external world. Imagine the company is not listed on the stock exchange. And imagine you all collectively own the company. It's not like a buyout where you're going to own it for a few years and then sell it. You're planning to own this company for your kids, your grandkids. You're in this for the, you know, the long term. Think about the decisions you would make if that were the situation. And those are the very same decisions you should make as a public company. In the 1970s, literally 50 years ago, there was a study showing that when companies increase R&D spending, Even though their earnings go down, the share price on average goes up. Okay. So why do people cut their R&D at the end of the year to try and meet an earnings number that's actually not even recognized by investors that way, right? You know, it's because of the internal pressures of trying to hit an earnings number. So what we want to do is we want to get people to think and act more like long-term committed owners. We want to take away the disincentives that people have created inside their, their company and then try and migrate them. It's a change management process. Migrate them toward thinking differently. But They often don't understand how the common processes they have inside the company are actually sort of fostering this short-termism. And once they understand that, uh, if they buy into it, then they can make changes. And once you stop measuring people, for example, against their annual plan for their incentive bonus, it takes away a lot of the bad behaviors just in that one act. So there are tangible things you can do.
0: We typically do measure executives, especially against projections that type of compensation came about because there was a perception that it drove the right behavior. So if you remove that incentive, what do you replace it with? Or do you just trust that well-intended people do the right thing for the company?
1: No, we want to replace it with something that actually rewards the right behavior. Although, actually, you raise a good point. In many cases, it would be better not to have incentive compensation than to have very bad incentive compensation. We like to say that when you measure people against their plan, you're encouraging them to plan for 2% growth and achieve 3% rather than planning for 10% growth and achieving 8%. We want people to stretch. And then even if they fall a little bit short, they still did much better. Instead of sandbagging, that's the technical sort of finance term, (laughs) putting forth a very low budget, low revenue, low profit in order to try and maximize whatever performance you produce, maximize what it's worth to you in terms of your bonus. That whole sandbagging process, we call it planning for mediocrity. You know, usually when you plan for mediocrity, you got a pretty good chance of ending up there.
0: You hit the question of failure. Let's hit that first and then go into what do you think a good process would look like? And as the owner of a company, I'm curious what I might do differently. So after we talk about failure, talk to me like I'm your client.
1: Okay. What I would want you to do is to not measure against your plans, but measure against last year. In order to do that, you need a complete enough measure that it captures everything. In your business or my business, profit is probably sufficient. But if you were running a manufacturing company, let's say, with lots of capital, we'd want a measure that recognized that. And we have a measure, I won't get into the details of it, but we call it residual cash earnings. And it's a measure of profit minus the cost of the capital you use in the business. So every time you invest capital, it basically raises the profit target. Instead of measuring against plan, we're measuring against that measure that includes that sort of cost of capital. And so we can just say, if it's better than last year, it's good. And if it's worse than last year, it's bad. Up is good, down is bad. That's what we often say to people. And once you have the ability to do that, the planning process becomes much more collaborative. If you're my boss, you know, and I historically have always sandbagged my plan, understated my expectations in order to drag my targets down to make them easier to hit. I'm going to conceal information from you i'm not going to share with you some of my new ideas for innovations that i want to get credit for and you you know similarly have an incentive to try and get my target up higher because you know i'm sandbagging and so it creates this contentious negotiation where there's concealing of information how is that good (laughs) first of all now if we get to an environment where you're getting paid based on the performance of the company if it goes up it's good and if it goes down it's bad i'm getting paid based on the performance of my business unit It goes up, it's good, if it's down, it's bad. We're like sitting on the same side of the table now. If I come to you and I say, I want to invest another $10 million in this innovation project or capital or advertising program, whatever. If I come to you and I say, I want to spend $10 million more before I ever come to you, I will have thought through, do I really believe I can earn an adequate return on that investment? And if I can, if I believe I can, then I'm going to argue for it. If I really don't believe I can, I'm never going to tell you the idea because why would I want to spend money on something that's going to reduce my pay? You may or may not approve it, but before you pass judgment on it, you're going to know that I've really internalized this and I believe in it myself. I'm putting my money where my mouth is. And knowing that, you're going to have a lot more confidence in what I tell you about the investment than in a situation where in planning processes, I'm incented to say the future's in doubt. Everything's terrible. My profit target needs to be really low. When I come to you asking for capital, I have the opposite incentive. I'm going to have the rosiest forecast for that specific project because I want you to approve it. But again, once I'm exposed to the outcome in this way that I've described, just up as good, down as bad, I measured against last year, the onus is on me to convince myself. And that's how it encourages you to think like an owner. And what we've found is that companies that think that way tend to grow faster because not only are they more unwilling to invest in bad things, they're more eager to invest in good things. They really differentiate a lot and they're, they're super excited to invest in things they really believe in. Varian medical systems had grown at two and a half percent a year for the three or so years before they embraced our framework in 2017 and over the next few years they grew at 11 percent a year it just stimulates a lot more sort of innovative thinking a lot more creativity a lot more entrepreneurism so you get more growth and i think it's usually something that's received very well by the by the r d department and by the marketing department two companies that do a lot that has to do with the future value of the business
0: So I'm thinking of a client right now who falls probably more in the conventional space. Marketing goes with their marketing budget and says, we need X dollars, but they're not necessarily proving their ROI. You've got revenue management, you've got technology, and each of them varying levels of sophistication. I don't believe that Executive A, other than the operations people who run the operations and even those, I don't know that each department is measured against profit in the way you're talking about. So they're certainly all measured. It's not like they're floundering around and just do stuff, but I don't know that they come in and say, okay, CFO, here's my proposal. This is how much it's going to impact top line, bottom line cost capital and here's the payback life of the investment kind of cost and revenue projections is that the discipline you would recommend
1: yeah i think that most large companies that i've worked with and many small and medium-sized companies too have a formal process for getting approval of new investments in the business you know, For anybody with a sort of corporate finance background, that normally involves projecting revenue, cost, capital, calculating free cash flow, calculating net present values, those kinds of things. It tends to be more rigorous when it comes to traditional capital, like equipment and machinery. It tends to be a little less, not less rigorous in the analysis, but a little more judgment maybe is applied when it's like an advertising program or, or an innovation project. But in a lot of companies, a lot of companies have been too focused on on profit margins let's say what happens is you know if you had two businesses in your company one has a really high profit margin one has a really low profit margin and let's say i pay them based on their profit margin the one with the really high profit margin is not going to find very many things that's going to make that profit margin higher there aren't going to be many projects that have higher profit margins than they already have so almost everything they think about doing is going to bring down the average and so they're not going to ask for much investment because most things don't make them look worse. You know, they make them look worse. It dilutes their margin. The other business unit with the really low profit margin can find lots of things that they can do that would have a higher margin and would bring up the average. And so you wind up with this totally bizarre outcome. And I see it in probably four out of five companies I walk into where the really good businesses are not asking for any money to grow. The weaker businesses are asking for lots of money to grow and you wind up investing more in the poor business and less in the good business which is exactly the opposite of what you should be doing right and so i would recommend having rigor around how people ask for money and get it approved but i also would try to construct measures in dollars rather than in percentages and again always measured them against last year so you know kind of again up is good and down is bad This way, the decision process and the performance measure are supportive of each other rather than having one saying invest more and the other one saying invest less. Given that kind of uncertainty, people usually do nothing.
0: That makes sense. Can we then shift to your perspective on quote failure? And I realize that's a word we all want to avoid. And then there's this fail fast thing. Failing faster isn't necessarily my goal. I think it's labeled wrong, frankly. It's learn fast, not fail fast. But your concept around failure and how to navigate it.
1: The highest level sort of way we describe what we do is to help companies embrace an ownership culture. We have five traits, which I can get into, that kind of describe that ownership culture. And one of them is the willingness to fail. It probably could have better been described as the willingness to experiment and sometimes fail. (laughs) But it's the never wanting to be seen as a failure that causes people to be unwilling to try things that they're not 100% sure of. And so the willingness to fail is really about accepting the fact that, you know, if I'm going to do things that I've never done before, some of them are going to fail and, you know, learn from it. The two sort of biggest problems we see as far as willingness to experiment and, and try new things, this sort of fear of looking like a failure, so I don't want to try anything I'm not sure of, and the other is once I try something I'm not sure of and it looks like it's failing, I don't want to admit it because as long as I say, oh, no, but it's, it's going to turn around, everything's going to be good, you know, then I'm not a failure. And so the fail fast, I see it as, you know, a willingness to accept failure, really, and move on and say, I'm not going to keep pouring good money after bad. We tried this. It didn't work let's stop now and we'll focus focus somewhere else. That So both the starting of the innovation project that could fail is often, especially in companies that are very, very disciplined, often that doesn't happen. And then once you do start the project and it's not going well, there's a lack of willingness to admit that and move on, which is also not good. And so you wind up with lots of money. We worked with one company in the life sciences space where you know almost 40% of the money that they spent was on projects that, when we analyzed them, if you could do it all over again, you never would have funded them.
0: You don't know that, right?
1: Right, exactly. But they were continuing to fund them. Forty percent of the current funding was on projects, some of which maybe you wouldn't do them again. But at this point, that sunk money, and it's still good to keep funding them now, you know, for the future. But you know, it was like forty percent. So clearly, there were some things in there that they were unwilling to admit failure on and move on. And I think that's a big number to be spending on on things that are never going to achieve you know a, a positive contribution to the value of the company you know over the full life cycle of the investment project it was just a symptom of a company that's unwilling to move on and unwilling to admit this isn't working let's stop funding it and we'll pour more money into this other thing that is working to accelerate it and you know they just kind of peanut butter the money around you know they spread it across too many things and they don't really focus on the ones that are good
0: to build on that, this was years ago, I heard the term the great conspiracy. We don't want to admit that our project isn't working. So we declare it a success and then just don't report the stuff that makes us look bad. So to your point, the openness to experimentation would be my word. Good scientists experiment. I worked with a researcher at one point who said a successful experiment is also proving I'm wrong because then I stop investing in the wrong thing as quickly as possible. But some of those wrong things, you know, if I've got a bucket of 10, if I hit it, I've hit the lotto. And if I fail, I've lost $2. And in this case, it was about curing a significant disease. So you invest a certain amount and it's just built into the investment equation. But her point was, I think the distinction here, proving I'm wrong is as important of an outcome of an experiment as proving I'm right. It's not failure, it's success. So I realized it's just semantics. For those of us who are not used to being wrong and failing, it's important semantics.
1: Yeah. Although I think a lot of the reason for the fear of failure is company culture. There are companies I've worked with where when something goes wrong, The discussion, uh, to refer back to something you said before, the discussion is immediately about, what. well, what did we learn from this? What do we know not to do this way next time? Uh, What did we learn that'll affect the way we approve things in the future or the types of things we'll approve? Yeah, that's the discussion. In other companies, you know, people get their head handed to them if something goes wrong. And so the first thing they learn is, well, don't do that again. (laughs) And this rut of of only wanting to propose things that they're nearly 100% sure are going to work out because they don't want to fail. It goes back to the conversation before about you know missing your plan. Why would you ever want to put anything in your plan that you're not a hundred percent sure is gonna is gonna work out? You're just taking money away from yourself. Uh, I used to do a lot of work in the energy industry. One of the very successful and very innovative companies back about 15 years ago, they were a client of mine, Transocean, the offshore drilling company. There was a five-year period between the end of 2002 and the end of 2007 where they produced five times the return of the stock market. If you had invested in them, the money would have increased by five times as much as if you had invested in the S&P 500 over that same period. In three of those five years, management bonus multiple was zero for the annual bonus plan. In one year, they got 60% of their target bonus. And in one year, they got, I think it was 150% or something like that. What happened was every year they set a budget based on what they thought was going to happen and they were building a lot of offshore drilling rigs at the time. And these things take a few years to build. So by the time a drilling rig comes online, you know exactly when you expect it to come online, exactly what it's going to cost, exactly what the contract is You know when you start drilling from the the big oil and gas company that's hired you to to drill wherever it is. And all that gets baked into the budget. You don't get paid at all for your successes because by the time they come online, they get baked into the budget and you just get penalized. If a rig comes online three weeks late because of, some sort of a production problem. You're losing three weeks of revenue. Maybe there was a cost overrun. You're exposed to all the downsides, but all the benefits were just baked into the budget. And the senior management were fine. Obviously, they had a lot of stock and they, they, you know, they made a lot of money. But as you go down the organization, people get much more from the annual bonus plan and they don't get as much stock like the senior executives do. And there are a lot of people probably not feeling too good about the fact that they were doing so well and they weren't getting paid very well. But that was an unusual case because they still went ahead and made all these big investments, I guess, probably because they were so big that they were being handled at the very top of the company. But in a lot of companies, there are thousands of tiny in- investments that are being made, small decisions that are being made. And a system like that would discourage you from ever making those multi-year decisions because you never get any upside. You just, you just face downside. If we want people to plan for things that they're not 100% certain of, we need to find a way to reward them that encourages them to do so. You know, another thing I learned in the oil and gas industry is, you know, they drill holes in the ground and sometimes they're dry. It depends on the type of drilling, but you know, I remember having a conversation, this is about 20 years ago, with a with a, a CFO who said, you know, if we drill 10 holes in the ground, we're only going to have oil in three or four of them. But those three or four have to earn a return on the drilling of the whole 10 of them. It's exactly the same for any innovative project. You might pursue five different ways of curing a disease as long as one of them works, it's probably going to make enough money to earn a return on the whole portfolio. But in a lot of companies, the operating review, they'll devote more time to why you did those four things that didn't work than they will out the one thing that did work, and that people learn not to take risks in that kind of an environment. So a lot of this is to get away from the hand slapping when something goes wrong, recognize if you want to pursue innovation, that's going to happen, and kind of bake that into the, the process. And it's not just a formal process, it's the way people act in meetings how your boss responds when something goes wrong really tells you a lot about whether or not you should do that again. And <laughs> if we want people to innovate, we have to accept that sometimes they're going to fail.
0: Can you then walk us through what the ownership culture looks like? In the context of you've said, one facet is we need to make sure that people feel comfortable experimenting and some of those experiments won't produce the results we had hoped.
1: Let me go back to the five traits I mentioned them before of an ownership culture. The first one is act like the money is yours. You know, I often think of somebody who uh wants the company to pay for business class airfare when, when they fly on vacation with their family, they fly in an economy. But when it's the company's money, you know, they treat it a little bit differently. That's a, a bad example because for most people, that's a much smaller amount of money than the big decisions they're involved in making, but it's that kind of behavior where You know, we don't really treat the company's money the same same as, as we treat our own money. So act like the money is yours. The second trait is extreme prioritization. One of the things I've really enjoyed when I've worked with entrepreneurs, you know, people that founded their companies, is their ability to just ignore most things that are happening around them and focus on a few things they think are really important. And it's a real flaw in most larger companies. They just have way too many initiatives going on, way too many what should be low priority activities going on. And unfortunately, they then don't really do a really great job of any of them. If you have 10 things you could be initiating as, as initiatives, probably two or maybe three of them are really the lion's share of the potential benefits. Not starting the other seven or eight so people can really focus on the ones that are important important way to act like an owner. And it's very at odds with what we see in most companies. I mentioned willingness to fail. The fourth one is more doing and less talking. One uh, executive I worked with many years ago in a public company left and went to a private company and i spoke to him uh, i actually had dinner with him after he moved to the private company and i said so what's really different he said we're very decisive i said what do you mean he said well he said at my old company if we were going to make a bolt-on acquisition you know a small company that we could buy and just kind of fold into the business we might have 20 or 30 meetings before we make a decision on what we're going to do and every meeting ends with a list of other things we can study before we make a decision. It's analysis paralysis. There's just, you know, oh, we got to look at this one more thing. And then at the end of the next meeting, oh, we just got to look at this one more thing. And in the new company, they would have three or four meetings. And once they figured they knew all the information, they would either say, yes, we're going to do it or no, we're going to, and they'd move on. They'd make a decision. They would move on. I've paraphrased something he said to me, and I described it in my book, actually. Of An owner knows that if they pursue an investment that has a $2 million net present value, but they spend $3 million making the decision, that's probably not a really good thing. So, you know, getting to action quicker, being more decisive is an important part of an ownership culture. And the last one is, it's not really about the short term or the long term, it's always about both. There's a focus these days on wanting companies to think longer term, which I think is very good, because I think, as you know, know, I, I believe many companies are too short term focused. But the other extreme isn't much better. I've worked with companies that are only focused on the long term and they never seem to produce any results. They always just have explanations as to why it's coming. Don't worry about it. The entrepreneurs that I've worked with, they try to drive current performance as hard as anybody. They want to achieve as much success as they possibly can this quarter, this year. But they would never get there by cutting an R&D budget or cutting an advertising budget or trying to pull January sales into December. They wouldn't play those. Why would they play those games? It's their money. They're driven... But it doesn't stop them from making the big investments in the future that they need to to get to where they want to go. I think Amazon is a really great example of this. By the way, our performance measure tracks Amazon's share price almost perfectly for the last like 10 or 15 years. When, when they weren't producing any accounting profits, our measure was positive. We treat R&D as an investment, not as an expense. And so we actually, we've tracked Amazon within 10% of their share price over the last, you know, over, the, over most of the time over the last 10 years.
0: Let's talk about Amazon as an example of the things you talk about. Can you tell us some specifics about Amazon and what they do that you think is exceptional?
1: Well, I don't think that they are as driven by things like quarterly earnings as most companies are, and yet they're very driven. They start with the customer. Everything starts with trying to make the customer experience better. And they're very, very close to their customer. Not only listening to the customer, but also designing things the customer doesn't even know they want. I mean, who knew we wanted Prime? <laughs> and now almost everybody has it. And so they are very, very focused on the customer, and then they find ways to deliver that, and they find ways to make money doing it. And they're resourceful. You know, they needed to build basically data centers to be able to do what they were doing in, you know, in books originally, and then they realized, wow, once we're building data centers, maybe we can sell space on these computers that aren't being used all the time. And, you know, AWS was born to basically take what they had to do for themselves. And, you know, so I think they've been very focused, very willing to experiment. Not everything they do works. Then they move on, they try something else. They're just constantly probing. Certainly they have probably a a higher focus on the future, a stronger focus on the future than most companies you run into. And they're also very driven to deliver results today. So, I mean, I think they really are a good example of this. I wish... I could have been there when they were 10 or 20 people and getting started just to see what the dynamic was like back then and what they really thought. It's one thing to talk now about what it was like back then, but it would have been great to be a fly on the wall back then and just see how they, how they set it all up, how the thinking really happened before they had all the resources they have now.
0: It is interesting that the phrase we use is telescoping in and out. Mm. I too would have loved to be there. I would have loved to be at Apple when they started, because they're another innovator. And Google is similar in that they are ahead of the market, creating the market. Unlike traditional consumer companies who would do focus groups and your customers would say, Hey, this is the thing I need. They create the thing that we don't know we need Mm -hmm. now. Maybe they had focus groups who thought of the iPod and the iPhone, but for most of us, I had no idea that I could put all my music from that stack of DVDs in a tiny little box and then it would go on my phone. Mm-hmm. It was the company being ahead of what we thought. And presumably there were some failures along the way.
1: Apple certainly had some failures along the way. I love looking at the Macintosh effort when they pulled people away from the main business to go work on designing the Mac. And there are lots of examples like that. You know, Lockheed had Skunk Works and There's a book called Bionomics, which is a really interesting book. It goes back and forth between talking about biology in one chapter, and then the next chapter is related, but about economics, and they go back and forth. I forget the real details, but there was some sort of a small living creature that lived in a lake, and when it would mutate, the mutations wouldn't take hold because there was this big population of unmutated activities, and it would get kind of run out of town, so to speak. But then every once in a while the lake would overflow and there'd be a little tiny pond next to it and that little tiny pond if there was a mutation it could take over and once that mutated and improved version of this life form took over the tiny pond the next time the sort of water rose and that went back into the main pond that now had enough momentum to take over the main you know, the main lake and it's the same sort of thing inside of companies you know if you try to innovate out in the open everybody takes on the that's not the way we do things around here kind of approach and the idea kind of gets squashed but if you break it off separate like the Macintosh effort and you pursue it with a group of people that are only focused on the innovation and then once the innovation takes hold it then goes to production comes back into the main organization i think sometimes through that kind of an organizational structuring you can give the innovation a lot greater chance of success than if everything happens within the throes of the main process of the company. It it, it gets the momentum it needs before it's sort of let out in the wild.
0: There's some interesting research and also successes that talk very much about if I've got the job of run the business it's hard to also innovate the business in the same business unit. Because run the business always takes precedent. We've got a customer issue, we've got a, whatever it is, that sucks up all the available resources. So the innovation team in some ways must be separate, maybe not in a Skunk Works building or something, but the, the duties segregated. I wanna say it was an interview with someone from Volvo. They were collaborating with IBM and basically what they did is said, these entrepreneurs are creating all kinds of stuff, whatever it is we need. Somebody's out there doing it. Mm -hmm. So let's find out who's doing it and then look at do we invest in them? Do we buy them? Do we joint venture with them, incubate them? and then look at how do we fold them in either across our enterprise or share that investment and fold them into the industry or competing industries, whatever that innovation is, but really then creating a community of large business, small business, understanding that often your small business is your incubator.
1: That makes a lot of sense, like captive venture capital inside of a company sometimes kind of works that way for sure. Yeah, I think the problem in some companies I work with is the company has gone through some kind of a turnaround, things had run amok, new management came in to fix the problem. And very often they do a great job. They meaningfully improve profit margins, returns on capital. They eliminate unnecessary cost and waste, and they institute a lot more discipline. And some of these companies have been great stocks during the period that they've gone through this transformation, if it's a public company and if it's a private company similar, even though you can't read the stock price. There's a point though, where you can't squeeze any more juice out of the orange. You need more oranges. And very often that whole process of instilling that discipline, instilling that real yearning for eliminating everything wasteful, you know, the black belt, six sigma to an extreme, actually often leads to a stifling of innovation. The companies that need to start innovating again you know, otherwise the sort of share price is going to stall, the growth will stall. They may still be a great company, but they're not going to be a great investment. It's a challenge. And I think actually to go back to what we were just saying, I think that's actually the time when you really need to separate it the most, because those are the kinds of organizations where, you know, anything that's not delivering now, they they want to eliminate, they want to get rid of. And I really do think that there's a real opportunity in, in innovation and a growth mindset in those companies to really take hold. But unfortunately, sometimes it requires a change of management. Sometimes the person that was expert at turning the place around is probably not the same person that's going to be expert at leading an innovation mindset and more of an innovative culture. Maybe at that point, they need a change of people. But I see it a lot because there's been so much focus on profit margins in companies that you know they've been through these massive cost cutting and, and other kinds of exercises. And it's, it's tough.
0: You know, it's interesting as you say that, because I think also of what happens when growth is the objective. So we get in acquisition mode and start folding companies in, depending on how aggressive and over-indexed on acquisition then you end up with a hodgepodge. Then you've got to do what you talked about and rationalize back down. Mm-hmm. Instead of over-indexing, what would it look like if we grew at a more sustainable rate? But I realize that's not as attractive to either a PE firm or the stock market. And yet the outcome can be so undesirable when you spend all the money to acquire them and then in some cases exit whole companies because they've been losing money for you.
1: A lot of academics, let's say, have studied acquisitions and have, have shown that on average ship prices drop when people announce acquisitions, and they try to make the case that acquisitions are bad. Our research shows the opposite. In most industries, we find that the more acquisitive companies, if you look at long periods of time, actually produce better ship price performance. One of the examples that I think is really interesting, we published a research report a few years back called Improving the Health of Healthcare Companies, which is the best name of a report i've ever come up with. And <laughs> in it we studied a lot of things, but two things i just want to mention. We studied what we call the reinvestment rate, how much of the sort of cash earnings that you generate are you investing back into the business? And we looked specifically at the R&D reinvestment rate and the acquisition reinvestment rate. And when we looked at pharmaceuticals in particular, not the whole we looked at the whole healthcare space, but then we looked at different industries within the sector and When you look specifically at pharmaceutical companies, you found a negative relationship between their R&D reinvestment rate and share price performance. And this was over a long period of time with many rolling three-year periods being included in the study. So bull markets, bear markets, all sorts of different parts of the cycle. And companies investing more in R&D had worse share price performance than the companies investing less in R&D as a reinvestment rate. And it was the exact opposite for acquisitions. Acquisitions were hugely positive relationship. The way we interpreted it, and we sort of described a little bit in the article, which was published in the Journal of Applied Corporate Finance, the large pharma companies are not as great at innovating internally. Partially, we think, because they have such deep pockets, there isn't this sort of sense of urgency to be successful like there is in a small fledgling biotech. And partially because every time the biotech would spend a dollar, the pharma company spends three because they want to do things the right way. And, you know, they have a big reputation, you know, risk and, and so forth. And and so everything that you want to do, they maybe overspend. So they under deliver because there's, you know, the same kind of urgency to to deliver as there is in the small company and they, and they overspend. And maybe they also have some lack of willingness to admit failure and stop projects that they should stop. And in the end, the relationship between the R&D reinvestment rate for the whole sector is negative with the share price performance acquisitions on the other hand very interesting because they've got these massive distribution networks that will take you know let's say a drug that some small biotech has come up with that they then acquire and they can take it globally in no time at all compared to if the small biotech tried to do it on their own they've got the legal departments to get the regulatory approval they've got the the production, they've got the the distribution, the sales, the selling teams, you know, they've got the whole footprint to be able to go and sell things. So, so if you had a small independent biotech pre-revenue standalone, if it was going to stand alone forever, maybe it's worth a billion dollars. I'm just making up these numbers. It's probably trading for 3 billion because everybody knows it's going to become an acquisition target. But then when the pharma company buys it, they can make it worth 10 billion because they immediately put it in hundred countries. It was just interesting to us that We've always been big supporters of R&D. Again, we treat it as an investment in our measure. And we actually track share prices better because we do that. We don't expense it in the year it's spent like accounting does. But in this particular case for the large pharma companies, they're actually better off buying than making. They're better off letting the small company do the early innovation and then buying them you know, right before the drug is going to make it through the, the third phase of FDA testing and then commercializing it themselves. That's what they're really good at, the commercializing. Their distribution networks are, are where the value is
0: interesting and that sounds like understanding your value proposition then back to our skunk works do the mutations survive better in the small pond right where in the large pond the way they're structured not as effective
1: right they probably need to maintain a certain amount of research activity to be able to fully understand the companies they're going to buy and, and so forth so i'm in no way trying to suggest they should shut down their r&d functions or anything like that but i would probably at least just based on this information, I'd probably want to be on the low end of the R&D reinvestment rate and be on the high end of the acquisition reinvestment rate if I wanted to be as successful as I could be in the, in the large pharma.
0: Greg, I'm assuming that varies by industry also. That in tech, it could vary. Let's use Tesla. Are they better at investing or buying? I don't know, so I'm not making an assertion. But they could have a different profile than pharma does.
1: Absolutely. And tech is a good example the large tech companies have been unbelievably innovative and unbelievably successful. We haven't done exactly the same study to be able to look at those two points. We have studied tech quite a bit and we've worked with some tech companies. But anecdotally, I could say it's a really good sector that you brought up because there is a much better relationship between internal innovation spending. And part of it might be because the time horizon from when you have an idea to when it gets commercialized is shorter. And maybe so the time from, you know, innovation to commercializing to large-scale commercializing can be very, very short. Yeah, whereas in the pharma company, the it could be 10 years from when you have an idea until it's actually made it through all the FDA testing and it's deemed safe. Or longer. Yeah, yeah, right.
0: Interesting then as we think about the short-termism, the time to market then I'm assuming is relevant. You can't be large pharma and have completely short-term thinking or you don't remain in large pharma.
1: That's Right they need to be long-term thinking. Although I think if they think about the different parts of their organization, they need to be very long-term thinking about their pipeline, their R&D, and their innovation and development. Once something gets to the end of that phase three testing and it's, it's ready to go to market, with that product, they become a lot more like most other companies, right? Now it's about how can we get the most out of it? How can we you know, grow it as fast as we can? How can we get the footprint to be as wide as we possibly can? How can we get the regulatory approvals and the IP protection that we need to have this be you know, successful as long as possible? How can we get it in the hands of every every doctor or prescribing entity that, that could possibly prescribe it? All those things are much more like, they're not that different from selling shoes. I mean, they are, but in terms of the time horizon, they're not very different. But the whole time leading up to that, is really very different, which is why they're organized the way they are. The R&D tends to be completely separate from the operations because they do need a very different mindset for the two sides of the house.
0: Well, and they have the added challenge of the duration before something comes off patent.
1: And having to deal with the moment they do come off patent and often profit on something really collapses at that point because of generic competition and, and so forth. It actually gives us a little bit of a challenge in terms of continuous improvement, measuring at that point, what we need to do is to have a means of in that year that it comes off patent, you know, being able to kind of insulate the cause of that one product going off patent from the continuous improvement we're measuring in the rest of the organization so that, you know, people don't get whacked in that one year for something we knew was going to happen. They didn't do anything wrong. It's just a normal course of events.
0: As you say that, and as we're using pharma specifically as our example, if you look at revenue year over year, when a big drug like, say, a Cialis comes off patent, the revenue is going to, could potentially, and I assume does, drop precipitously. And that is not a reflection then of that year's effectiveness. It's a reflection of the portfolio.
1: Right. And the share price doesn't fall off the cliff at that point because they knew it was coming, right? The multiple went, got lower and lower as you got closer to the cliff, the earnings multiple, and then... When the earnings drops, the multiple goes back up to a normal level. It's an interesting conversation with like investor relations people. They say, "Well, how am I gonna how am I gonna fill in the earnings?" Uh, you're not. <laughs> you know, it becomes a bigger problem for companies that have not been successful with innovation. We did a study for a large biotech company some years ago, and we studied all the large biotech companies. These are established companies with you know good strong earnings. They're not as big as the pharma companies, but for all intents and purposes, they're a lot like them. Genentech was still a separate company. And when we looked at the valuation of the companies, we separated out the value of all the existing product from the value of the pipeline. Did some math to kind of estimate that. And then we looked at the value of the pipeline in relation to the amount of money they had spent over the last, I think, eight years on R and D. And most of the companies traded at you know, somewhere between 50 cents on a dollar to a dollar. In other words, if I spent a billion dollars on R&D, that value of the pipeline was somewhere between half a billion and a billion. So the market wasn't hugely positive on what was going to come out of the R&D. They mostly were valuing the products that had already gone to market. The exception was Genentech, whose pipeline it was valued at three or four times the amount of money they had spent on on R&D. I said to the CFO of the client, I said, why do you think that is? He said, because they've released a billion dollar drug four years in a row. (laughs) They had a track record of just great success and which is also largely why they got acquired also but they had a track record of just great success of you know products coming out of the pipeline and becoming good commercial successes if you had that kind of an environment with that kind of repeated launch you have enough going on and successful enough pipeline something going off patent nobody even pays attention to it because you got something to replace it immediately a lot of the reasons companies get into trouble around the back end of their patent period is because they haven't been as successful in their pipeline management and their in their innovation, and they don't have things to replace it. Even though it's unusual where the timing would be such that just as it goes off patent, something else launches that day, but you know it doesn't have to be that coincident, but the cliff looks more pronounced when there haven't been a lot of upward cliffs going on in the, in the last few years. So I think a lot of the valuation, and when people talk about confidence in management, innovation, success, gives people an impression that, well, we don't know what it's going to be, but you're likely to continue to be successful, you know, and that gets sort of valued in, and the same happens in reverse. Those keep spending money and, and not producing new products are assumed. It's assumed that that's going to continue also.
0: Also, as I listen to you, I think there's probably some combination of build versus buy for any company. Now, some industries buy may be more effective, but not 100%. Others build may be more effective depending on the company culture, the talent you can get. I'm guessing Genentech had some superstar talent that it wasn't just they had better technological equipment.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think that there are people that are just better at it, I think. We only really know after the fact, but some people I think have a knack for it. I don't know if it's it's their ability to envision things that haven't happened yet or or what it is, but yeah, I do think that, that that makes sense.
0: And then the other side of the portfolio is, well, part is then understanding the portfolio. What are our gaps? What are our opportunities? And then how do we go and acquire the things that complement what we have or serve as the base and what we have folds into them?
1: I think that's right. Stick with the pharma example. The companies that are really successful, they know which therapeutic areas are the sweet spot for them, where they have the skills, where they have the the insights, where they have the the distribution network of being able to get to those kinds of doctors, what have you, and then acquiring in the area where you can, you know, the acquisition game is interesting. You really are most successful with acquisitions when you're the best buyer. If you're looking at some kind of a, you know, treatment for some disease, uh, and it's a disease that you already have a product, and now you're going to require something else that has some other angle on dealing with that disease or that kind of that part of the body, at least like lungs, let's say, or something like that. You're going to be a better buyer than anybody else because you already have people that are going to doctors to talk about treatments for lung issues. And now you, you know, so those very same people can now bring this new drug. You don't have to hire new people and so forth. Whereas if I have a company that does things that are related to some foot ailments, and now I am going to acquire something that is related to the lungs, I'm not already going to those doctors. So now I need a whole new sales team. And so the people that are the best buyer tend to be able to bid a higher price than everybody else and still make it create value because they can just integrate the company so much more efficiently. So I think the mistake a lot of people make is they try to diversify too much, that costs money. Whereas knowing what you're good at and really focusing on it is uh, I think more likely to be successful in an acquisition strategy.
0: I am far from an M&A expert, but I do watch folks and one of our team members is an M&A expert. So we talk about rolling up people in a sector which is what it sounds like you're doing. So all value restaurant chains, packaging value restaurant chains, rather than having a Ruth's Chris and a Sonic. Not much synergy other than they feed people, Mm -hmm. at least to my not very sophisticated sense. There's not much overlap. So you would want to, in this case, roll up a bunch of fast versus fast casual dining and then... Mm -hmm. Consolidate also across the top end of the industry.
1: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense.
0: And that all comes back to then what is the enterprise's objective? So, if the objective is maximizing investment and leveraging the distribution system, that's absolutely practical. If they have diversification as an objective, then they may go after a different pool of acquisitions.
1: Yeah. When people say to me, you know, what should the objective of the company be? We use the term value leadership to mean companies that are successful at creating value. You know, we think it's important to think of that, you know, kind of top quartile value creation for public companies in terms of stock price uh, appreciation and, and that sort of thing. But what you often find is the very same companies that lead, they also typically are the companies that operate with better corporate purpose, They're typically the companies that treat their employees better. They tend to be more innovative they tend to be better for the communities that they're in companies that have a strong ethos a strong set of values that they really live by and run by tend to be really good for all their stakeholders not just their investors one thing i wanted to to sort of weave into this if it's okay weave in here we did some research a few years ago with chief executives for corporate purpose on brand purpose uh, which is measured by a company called bearer brand management in collaboration with jim stengel we took their scores on brand purpose for companies where the majority of the company is one brand, like Delta airlines is a, is a monobrand brand company. And we had over a hundred of these companies and we studied them and the companies that had a, above median ranking on purpose also produced more growth, had higher profit margins, had better returns on capital were valued at higher multiples of earnings and produced much higher total shareholder return. And I think a lot of times going back to my turnaround example before when companies go through a turnaround, they kind of sometimes what's at risk is losing that purpose. You know, they become too ruthless about cost cutting and and so forth. And I think that if you want to be a good company, regardless of what mode you're in, you're in innovation and growth mode, you're in turnaround mode, whatever you're in, you can't lose sight of, of that greater purpose that, you know, caring about all stakeholders, caring about your employees. And, you know, there's been a lot of work done recently. Our thing is ownership culture. And, What's really interesting, that's becoming a big thing even for private equity. And there's a a guy named Peter Stavros at KKR. He's a partner of KKR who has been leading private equity buyouts where they wind up putting stock in the hands of every employee in the company. And there's actually some really great success stories they've had now where people at the lower levels of a company are getting nice, medium to large six-figure payouts when the company goes through a transformation and then gets sold, every employee in the company is getting three four five six hundred thousand dollar checks at that point in time it's a pretty cool thing and he would say and i would say too that that success is largely because of those people and the things that they did and sharing it that some of the success with them actually probably makes more money for the private equity firm right people often want to just keep it all you know they don't view it as being a, a worthwhile investment to share upside with every employee in a company they're proving it over and over again now with with companies where they've they have actually shared quite a bit, but when you do that, also, you now get people pointing out things that need to be fixed in the company. If there's an innovation process that's broken, sometimes people just don't say anything. Eh, I wouldn't do it that way if it was my company, but it's not. I'll just come to work and do my job. Now with the stake in the action, you know they're raising their hand and they're saying, "We, we got to fix this. This is something that we really got to do." So the ownership culture gets people to act in ways they don't when they just come to work as an employee every day, and. You can get at some of these sort of cultural aspects without that kind of ownership, but the ownership really helps. It's something I think a lot of companies should really think about. It can really offer a fairly big size of the prize in terms of upside success.
0: Just a final question, because this is such an interesting topic for me, the the debate now with stakeholder capitalism and the, quote, purpose of capitalism is to deliver returns to those who provided you capital versus by taking care of the range of stakeholders i actually provide more return to my the people who provided me capital can you drive us home on that question
1: i think they're both right when the business roundtable in uh, august of 2019 proclaimed that the purpose of the corporation is no longer just to worry about shareholders but to worry about all stakeholders people were posting that on linkedin you know with tremendous frequency and I wrote something and I started posting it as a comment on every one of them that I saw. And it went something like this. All the good CEOs already knew that if they want to produce good results for their shareholders, they need to take care of their employees. They need to take care of their customers. They need to care about the communities they operate in. And so although the statement is true that the business roundtable put forth, good CEOs already knew that. They already knew they needed to worry about all those constituents in order to deliver results for the shareholder. So really, technically, nothing changed. That was my view at the time. I wasn't against their proclamation. I just felt it was unnecessary. Um, Now I've gone through two variations of that thinking since then. Uh, One is, I think there are a lot of people around that didn't think that way. And so the proclamation helped them to to behave differently. Um, That's one thing. But the other thing is I see companies weaving, you know, different like ESG measures into their compensation and, one of my biggest complaints about executive compensation for the last 30 years that I've been doing the work that I do has been that we give people too many incomplete measures and that leads to bad behavior. You know, if I measure growth and margin, maybe people overinvest in capital because I'm not measuring that. You know, and, and so, you know, one of the things that we've sort of added is a very good, very complete measure that captures, as I said before, growth, margin, capital productivity, utilization, and so forth all in one measure. And when it goes up, it's good. When it goes down, it's bad. And that has a big impact on improving people's behavior. We don't have a measure like that for all the other stakeholders. And so we put a couple of measures in, And what happens is the things that we're measuring get extra special treatment. It doesn't mean the company as a whole got any better. What we need, and I don't have an answer for this, but what we need to really make it work is some kind of a comprehensive scorecard, something that takes into account how you treat the environment, how you treat the communities, how you treat your employees, Innovation, which is important for the communities, all the things that you do needs to come through in one sort of complete scorecard. So you would, you know, because otherwise we have the problem where, like, if you squeeze one side of the balloon, the other side pops out. We didn't really change the amount of air inside the balloon by squeezing it. That's the problem we run into when we just throw a couple of of these metrics in. So anybody who really understood what makes businesses successful already knew that we shouldn't ignore our employees. Let's not say that all companies did that. So I don't think there was a need to do it. I do think there were a lot of people that are now caring about things they didn't care about before so maybe the benefit of it has been positive but the way it's been implemented in terms of performance measures has been incomplete and has not really it's not really led to the behavior we wanted when we started doing this so i think work has to be done on how we need to measure it more completely so that all of the benefits and shortcomings for all stakeholders kind of get combined in some kind of weighted way so that so there's a real scorecard then I think the incentives might actually have an impact on behavior.
0: I like the wrap up that the declaration wasn't wrong. The implementation is not yet complete because I have also looked at some of the data and it's showing that the behavior has not changed as one would have hoped. And so I hear that being an implementation and measurement issue, not that the declaration was in fact inaccurate. So we're gonna wrap up, Greg, thank you so much. Would you like to tell our listeners again, the name of your book and how to reach
1: you? Sure. So my company is Fortuna Advisors and our website is uh, fortuna-advisors.com. And people can reach me at gregory.milano at fortuna-advisors.com. And my book is called Curing Corporate Short-Termism, Future Growth Versus Current Earnings. And it's it's a playbook basically for all of what we've been discussing, you know how companies should plan, how they should allocate capital and other resources, how they should approve investments, how they should measure performance, how they should provide incentive compensation. There's a chapter basically on all of those things. It's intended to basically be a guidebook for how to embrace the kinds of principles behind that ownership culture.
0: Thank you. This is incredibly helpful. We don't do as often interviews in the financial space as we do a lot of other spaces and strong financial acumen is absolutely as important as every other aspect of leadership. So to our listeners, please subscribe, like us, share us, share Greg's information, buy his book, Strong Financial Acumen is Crucial for Well-Run Businesses. Thank you for listening. And we hope that we can be invited into your home again soon.